This is John chapter 18. And let's start with prayer. God, we are thankful that we are here, that you sustain us, give us our breath, give us the ability to think, and gave us the opportunity to be here today to look into your word. So open our minds up to hear what you want us to find out about this, to glorify you. Amen. Well, you guys, you probably don't need me to tell you there's a battle of good and evil out there, do you? <laughs> no. Just, um, just, there's, it's just out there, bad stuff. It's not good and evil, but I'll say this. Last week, Ferrier came and put shoes back on my quarter horse, and the first thing he does, the horse, is step right on this toe, all his weight, so I go in the house later on, and I'm going to soak my feet. I'm walking around barefoot, and lo and behold, I go and stub the toe on this foot. <laughs> so I'm like walking around. But anyway, it's just another sign of the fall, isn't it? You know, there's just bad things out there. But we can laugh at stuff like that. And we can laugh at kind of like sin and evil also. This chapter here is really... Even the way it's written, it's there to show us, the, the, again, a contrast between good and evil. Um, and this is, chapter 8 is like right, we're right at the climax of, of where the two powers come together. And we know how the story ends. But Satan is at his finest right now, just a little bit more unleashed and just kind of working like crazy to just, whatever he can do to, to get rid of God's plan of salvation. So that we start with this, Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. And the first 11 verses are talking about kind of giving us the scene, moving them into the garden. And then it goes in chunks. It goes with a little bit talking about um, Jesus, and then it goes a chunk into what's going on with Peter out by the fire, and then it goes on with Jesus, and it goes with Peter. And it's intertwined in there to help us to see how the two kind of come together. It's a beautiful way of literature to pull those things in together and see how they are operating together. So as we look at the first 11 verses, it's looking at pretty much the power of Christ, his love, and his obedience. And love and obedience go hand in hand. But the power of Christ. Remember, we found out, Jesus has told us, that all authority has been given to him by the Father. He has all authority over everything. He has authority over his own death in his own life. So... When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. He went out. He went across the Kidron Valley or a little um, dried up river bank where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered into. So we see the transition from the upper room going out, crossing over, and going into. This kind of detail is in here again to let us know that these, this actually happened. They moved here. It's not just a fictitious story. And they enter into a garden that was probably a walled-off garden, a private garden um, in Gethsemane. It was an olive orchard. And Jesus and the boys went there frequently. That was probably their little hangout when they wanted to get away from crowds. It needed to be a walled-off private place. It's almost like the secret garden. Remember the book, The Secret Garden? So this is where they were at. And Judas knew about this place because they would go there a lot. 
Now, Jesus was not going there to hide, okay? He was going there because if he wanted to hide, he wouldn't have picked that place because Judas wouldn't, would know where he was going. So, but they also went away to this place and Jesus knows everything that's going to unfold because it was protected and it was private and there were many, many, many thousands of people in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover. And with what is about to happen is out in the open, it would have caused maybe a riot. So having this walled garden this uh, around the olive tree in this uh, of Gethsemane, it became more private. So verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured, which means like a very special effort, he went to a special effort to range this this group of people, a band of soldiers, probably about a hundred or so, and some officers from the chief priests. In other words, that would be the temple police. And the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas's evil plan is unfolding. About a hundred Roman soldiers, men, to back up the temple police, led by Judas, going in there, and they've got these torches, and they've got lanterns, and they've got weapons, with the anticipation, because think about this, it was Passover. Passover happens on a full moon. You know how bright it is out there on a full moon? You, can, you, can, you have shadows on a full moon, don't you? moon shadows. Lots of songs about that. And so they could see. So the fact that they had these lanterns and these torches and weapons, they were of the mentality that they're going to have to fight for him and that maybe he even might run away and hide and they'll have to go looking for him in some houses and stuff like that. Could be, but there was a full moon and there was plenty of light out there. There was no need for all of this stuff. Jesus had no intention of hiding. He had no intention of running away. He met them with majestic calmness and absolute control over the situation. He was willing to, I mean, the plan was he was going to give up his life, willingly laid down his life, voluntarily surrendering. There was not going to be a fight that happened. Now, our passage here in John does not say how Judas kissed him on the cheek, but I think it's interesting to note, so we can get more of the contrast of the good and the evil happening here. The fact that Judas kissed him on the cheek was a, a sign of an intimate friendship. He didn't kiss him on the feet, he didn't kiss him on the hand, he didn't touch his garment to identify him. He came up boldly as a friend, a close friend, and kissed Jesus on the cheek. All the more the treachery of his despicable betrayal with this. Jesus, who had loved Judas and lived with Judas and just didn't treat him any different than the other disciples, to betray him with that is pretty significant. So he identifies who Jesus is. Um, that's identified. So you kind of scratch your head and say, you know, why didn't they just go and arrest him now? But he comes forward out of the crowd Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He moves forward away from the disciples and said to them, whom do you seek? 
Maybe that's at the point where Judas kissed him. We don't know, but there was identification there. And Jesus asked them whom they sought. And they answered him, and notice this. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is a man. That's the human flesh. And Jesus said to them, this is a bad translation in here, because the original translation is just, I am. I am. You can take a little pencil and cross out he. I was doing my lesson, I was doing Oliver's lesson last night, who's seven, from an old Bible we had um, from our kids, early uh, children's translation, and it says, I am Jesus, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Totally misses the point here. The fact that he said, I am he, I am God, so he's acknowledging I am Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, and I am God, I am God. He's pulling those two things together. Totally in charge of the situation, what's going on. He's not the intended victim, he is in control. The I am is used, the name of God, in Exodus 3.14. I am. And what happened as soon as he said that? I am. And notice who's in this crowd. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. (sighs) Yes. Rooting for him, aren't you? You know, there's Judas. He falls back too. And fell to the ground. I mean, here's like a hundred plus soldiers, whatever, torches, whatever. Thank goodness none of them caught on fire. They're there. You're scrambling around and everything. And he just says, I am. And the power of the spoken word and identifying who he is um, was overwhelming to them. And they fell back to the ground. He just had to speak his name and his enemies were rendered helpless. Okay, they were helpless. Does he have power and control? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's interesting because their memory is either short-lived or there's other things going on here. Verse 7, so Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I guess they've collected themselves by now. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. His disciples, let them go. And Jesus answered, he said this to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Even in this moment of about to be arrested and spit upon and tortured and just, you know, scourged and just the horrible physical abuse that's about to happen, not to mention what happens on the cross. Who is he thinking of? His disciples, his love for them, and the power he has. He had just prayed for their safety. Keep them. Don't take them out, but keep them. And he's telling these guys, you came to get me, so let them go. Which is interesting because later Peter was so scared. They were all scared, but Jesus had pretty much said, protect them, let them go. Don't take them in. Um, is his love, his concern, his display of looking out for them no matter what. And we are like, he takes care of us like that. <clears throat> he reminds them that their orders were only to arrest him. 
And he had a lot of power to say that at the time because he just blew them all down. He says, okay, and you guys aren't touching them either. So, okay, we won't. What is it going to take you? He left him alone. He shielded his disciples from being arrested because he knew this. If they had been arrested at that point, their faith maybe would have failed them. They would have been caught up. They, were, they scattered anyways. But he doesn't allow things to happen to us that we can't control, that we don't have the, the ability, the faith to be able to overcome and to handle. He's the good shepherd, and he's taking care of his sheep and protecting them, them and us. So he had love. He had power. The love is there. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, and notice the name here, Simon Peter. Up to this point, it's been Peter, 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 Peter. All right, this is something significant to hang on to. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, again, rebuking Peter. He's always rebuking Peter, isn't he? Put your sword into the sheath, so shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter isn't quite understanding yet that Jesus has got to go to the cross. He has got to die. He's got to suffer. And maybe because Peter just saw how powerful it was that Jesus just said something and they fell over, maybe he had extra courage. So he takes his sword and what was he going to do? Slash his way through a hundred men? He was a little bit out of control there with that. He was being very um, reckless, careless, um, but Jesus immediately diffuses it. And in Luke 22, we know that Jesus took that ear and healed it back on. Another thing, they witnessed that. Why didn't they just say, oh my gosh, he is, he is God. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But the sin, sin blinds people from even miracles. There's power, terrible power with sin and Satan. It blinds man's minds and hardens our hearts. And they were probably literally dead in their sin where they didn't notice those things right in front of them. Okay. So here's Peter again, not understanding the necessity of the cross. Remember, Jesus has already rebuked him. No, it'll never happen. You'll never die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And here's Peter now trying to stop it also, trying to stop God's plan from going forward, thinking that he knew what was best for God. I have to stop and pause here. How many times do we do this? <laughs> really? How many times? Because it doesn't look like it's going the way it should be going. But if he is the God of this Bible and sovereign and loves us and cares for us, lay it aside. He's got us. And his plan that unfolds is always a, such so much better than our dreams that we have. If we look back, I mean, I, I know in my own personal life it has, and I've had some rough things happen, but you know, when you step back, oh, wow, okay, I see it now. Okay. I wouldn't have done it that way, but I can see it. <laughs> okay. So does he say to you, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, the cup of divine judgment? And he drank it fully to the bottom. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was going to do this for, for our sake. 
So the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the obedience is leading him to the saving sacrifice on the cross. And we have to step back and ask ourselves, do we, we don't know everything that's going on. We don't. We have limited information, limited knowledge. We, we think we know a lot, you know, but there's a lot that we don't know. But will we be able to trust Christ and his power and his love and his obedience just on a day-to-day basis? Okay, so that's the scene. Those first 11 verses are in there. Now we get into our little paragraphs, and we're going to start with Jesus in the trial. And these two interplaying dramas, we've got Jesus' trial, and we've got Peter's denial. Okay, They're held within probably earshot of each other. but there's a little scene going on with Jesus in the trial. And then not far back is you have Peter around that, that fire. And as we look at Jesus first, and I debated whether or not, so do I go back and forth or do I do it? So I chose to do it the way our lesson did it. And that's just kind of looking at Jesus and then we'll look at Peter. So the band of soldiers in verse 12 and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They bound him. And that's what they would do with sacrifices. They would bound him. Abraham bound Isaac. Um, Sacrifices were always tied up and bound. They probably didn't have to do that to Jesus, but they did it. And it was symbolic. It was not even symbolic because that's the real deal there. Everything else is symbolic of this. Um, Psalm 118.27 says, The Lord is good. The, The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's like a praise. That's like a, when they would sacrifice an animal to the Lord for uh, um, either uh, repentance or for for praise for him it was a festive time it was a, a a a celebration time to be able to do that and present these sacrifices to the lord this is a totally different scene we're taking it all wrong here but in light of it is we are so thankful and we wouldn't say yeah take them but it's like thank you for going really so he they bound him now this trial There's three phases with the trials before the Jewish authorities. Jesus was brought before Annas. He was brought before Caiaphas. And he was brought before the Sanhedrin. Then there were three phases of the civil trial. He was brought before Pilate. He was brought before Herod. And then back to Pilate again. It's kind of interesting that there were three denials with Peter too. I don't know what's going on with the number three here. But we've got some phases happening. 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So, they brought him before the Jewish hierarchy, and Annas was not currently the high priest. He's the former high priest, but he was the most powerful in their hierarchy at the time. Um, He was proud and ambitious, and he was notoriously greedy. Ananias, having served as a high priest and now kind of retired, semi-retired, was still drawing his income from all the money that was brought into the temple. Okay? Okay. 
He had a real big problem with Jesus because Jesus kept messing up his business. He'd go in there and he'd throw over the changing the money, uh, all the, the, the business he was disrupt. And we see that in both John 2 and Matthew 21, where he comes in and cleanses the temple. Twice he did that. So he really wanted to get rid of Jesus. Okay. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law, and he currently was in the high priest position. And he was in that position, he had been in that position and currently in it longer than any other high priest. And why was that? Very cunning, very opportunistic, very ruthless. He was protecting his, his uh, position there. And he was the one who said, well, we need to get rid of, it's better for one to die than all of us. So just get rid of Jesus. And so he had this very... A cunning and ruthless way of dealing with things, kind of undermining things. And so this is who was Jesus was brought before. So jumping down now to verse 19. The high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. It was not his job to do that. His job was only to inform Jesus of the charges against him. Right off the bat, we know this trial's a sham. Current affairs again. He was just saying, these charges have been brought against you, and this is over, and just drop it right there. But he starts drilling Jesus, asking him questions, trying to entrap him. We have something today called the Fifth Amendment, that we don't force someone to testify against themselves, okay? The Fifth Amendment. And he were doing that, hoping to uncover, asking him questions, probing around, trying to entrap him, trying to get him to say something or do something to uncover a crime. <laughs> Man, there's just so much going on today of this stuff, right? So they could find something to say, aha, there it is. We get to kill him now. So this whole little sham trial was just something to put a veneer over or find a cover up to give them justification for the fact that they can kill Jesus. But Jesus knows all, and he's very aware of the law. He knows the law better than they do, apparently. Because in 20, Jesus answered them, him, I have spoken openly in the world, and I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came, come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I've said. In other words, quit asking me questions. Bring in your witnesses. Let's have a fair trial here. I have nothing to hide here. I've spoken openly, uh, plainly, no hidden agenda, no secret plan. Um, I've only offered the gospel and offered salvation. He wasn't defiant. He wasn't defiant. He was just trying to keep them to the law legitimately, bring in the people that accused me. Bring your witnesses forward. Well, verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus had exposed Annas' hypocrisy. And one of his officers standing there was probably embarrassed or came to his rescue and struck out at Jesus which was illegal to strike a prisoner. 
And in Acts 23, it happened with Paul when he was arrested and he got struck. And remember, Paul yelled back at the guy, you know, he got angry. And then later humbled himself and apologized for it. But so there are laws being broken all over the place here. But Jesus is maintaining a calmness, a a majestic calmness, let's just call it that, um, and composure. So Annas knew that he was going nowhere with Jesus, so he's going to send him off to Caiaphas, okay? So we have this going on with Jesus, a calmness, a composure, a knowing exactly what's going on, in control of everything. Going forward, because why? Because of the love of us and the love of the Father and out of obedience, he's following forward. And why is he doing this? Peter holds the answer, because we can all identify with Peter. If we're honest, we can all identify with you. Peter is following Jesus. We follow Jesus, right? He's following Jesus, but he's following at a distance here. It's not following really close, proximity and understanding-wise, submission-wise. So Peter, in verse 15, excuse me, Simon Peter, Jesus changed his name. Remember in John 1.42, the very first chapter of John. Ah, your name is Simon. I will call you now Peter, right? So he took Simon, which is more of his fleshly doing things in the flesh, you know, and changed it to Peter, more of his spiritually new name, um, that he was being transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus had taken his heart of stone and given him a heart of flesh and he was renewing him and, and there was a change of person and that happens to us when we change. And so that was reflected in the, 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 the name being changed also. But here, whenever you see Simon Peter, it's kind of like we're regressing a little bit back to the flesh again here. And he is, isn't he? Pulling out the sword, acting like this. He's acting in the flesh. He's not being really led by the spirit. Romans 7, where Paul talks about those who set their minds on the flesh is not good, and those versus those who set their minds on the spirit. So here we have Simon Peter being identified as being more in the flesh. Now, he was just had a great display of bravery with his sword, but then he fled when Jesus was arrested, and now he's kind of regrouped a little bit, got his composure, and he's starting to come back, and he starts to follow the arresting party. And he's following along with John, who is pretty much the other disciple. And John is known by the high priest. Why would John be known by the high priest? Well, John's mother is identified in scripture as Salome. She was the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary. So Mary and Shalom were sisters. Since Mary was related to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is in the line of David, there's a priestly line going on here. So there's a good chance, small community, that John was associated with these high priests and could have even had some priestly blood in him. So he vouched for Peter to come on in. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are... And listen again, 
how it's phrased, because it's, it's expecting a negative answer. It's almost setting up. My mother used to do this to me. You don't really want to take that. Oh, no, I don't. You're right. I don't. You know, ever give people like that? So we see it here. It's expecting a negative, almost like priming you to say a negative. She's at the door and she said, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a coal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Okay, so he's denied Jesus either by following the cue of that girl or too fearful. Remember when we get afraid, the blood's not in our head. If we're going to take a test, you've got to be relaxed so that your, blood, your brain can think and everything. But when you're too scared, you can't. So, no, I'm not. Okay, so to avoid any more questions, once he got in there from this girl, he's going to hurry over across the courtyard to hope to just disappear in the crowd of the soldiers, probably part of the resting party standing there, warming themselves, waiting to hear what's going to happen to Jesus. They had to be kind of on standby, not far away. He attempts to blend in with those who were probably part of this party. He's trying to blend in with the enemy, right? He ends up standing with the enemies of Jesus. Oh, ladies, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 comes to mind. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Be careful who we hang out with. He's hanging out by this fire with all these guys that have just arrested Jesus. You know what they're saying. All the bad things, all the negative things. And he's sitting there just kind of taking it all in, taking it all in. Standing where he shouldn't have been standing. He should have been left outside, standing outside the door. So, earlier, remember he, had, he said, self-confidence, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I'm going to just follow you wherever you go. In his own ability, in the strength of his own flesh, man, this hits us because when we start to do things, no matter the good intentions, if we're doing it in the power of our flesh, we're going to fall. And just also, piece that's not in here, from Luke twenty-two thirty-one, back in the upper room, it wasn't included in John, but, but Luke includes this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus already had this conversation with Satan. Satan wanted Peter, like Job, go back there, but it was going to be limited. So he's in hot water. Not only was he working from his own fleshy mindset, he was also working against an enemy that was out to get him. But Jesus prayed for him, and Jesus knew that his faith, wouldn't, his faith would not fail him, although it appears like it failed him at first. Okay. So there's Jesus, or there's Peter by the fire, and he gets interrogated a second time in verse 25. Now Simon Peter, or still in the flesh, right, was standing and warming himself. Somebody said it's like the, the heat of hell was there or something, you know. I'm sure some of that passed your, passed your mind. And so they said to him, again, it's in the negative, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. 
And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. The scriptures are being very polite here, but the increase of the passion and the anger and the frustration that was building in Peter with each one kind of blew up with a swear word. It's almost like, damn it, I am not. Or maybe even stronger than that. But you can see, and why did that happen? Well, he denied it the first time. That's sin. Did he repent of it? No. He sinned a second time and a third time. When we sin and don't repent immediately, if we postpone that, it just sucks us right down where we don't want to go. But we're never left there as Christians. The washing machine, just agitation, the washing machine just gets going a little bit stronger until we say, okay, okay, you're right, God, I repent. The phrasing of the questions in the negative form, it just reminded me so much of back in the garden in Genesis 3, where the snake was there, and he says to Eve, did God really say that? You have to be careful of the enemy out there. They love to twist. They love to just tilt it a little different way. Truth is absolute, and it doesn't waver. Okay. So, a third time, and what happens? He hears the rooster crow. How many of you picked up this? What's a rooster? A rooster is a male chicken. Bok, 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 bok. You like that? I'm pretty good at that, aren't I? <laughs> it's because I talk to them all the time. They're my friends. <laughs> but he chickened out. Big time, didn't he? chickened out. The rooster crowed three times. Now, at that moment, two things happened to draw these two dramas together. And it's not in John, but I think it's worthwhile to point it out. In Luke 22, 61, at that point, Jesus turned and looked at Peter and their eyes met. Boy, oh, man, yeah, Ooh. The face of our Savior, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Boy, is that not a showing us who we are and the face of who he is and he knew everything. And those next couple of days must have just been really torture for him. Because it says in verse 62 of Luke 22, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And that kind of weeping, if you've never done it, is, is rough. You live long enough, you, you get there. It's a weeping. So we have the faithfulness of Christ, and it's intertwined with the sinfulness of man. And this is the whole reason the cross had to happen. The whole reason. So as we go through life, as we serve him, as we, as we serve him faithfully till we either get raptured out of here or pass away from COVID or whatever the heck's out there. <laughs> Those who know me know I'm just, can't, I'm so tired of this. Um, 
we have to realize we don't always have all the information. We don't always know how the story is going to unfold. It looks to us like it's a disaster. But if he is who he says he is in this book, he's got us. And whatever's going on in our life, it's for our good, right? 828 Romans. And to trust him and to be loyal and faithful and to not act on things in our own. So choosing to trust him because of his power and his love and his obedience all to his glory. God, we, this is just so much easier for me to say this than to do it. God, I, I know, and I, and I know your word is there, but I also know this, that you have given us your spirit to help us live this out. The world is a difficult place, as you know, and you're not taking us out and you're leaving us here and you're empowering us with your spirit. So help each one of us, God, live in the, in the power of that spirit to your glory. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.